Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, today we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew, as we have been. We are in Matthew chapter 20, and I'll begin by just simply asking, have you ever really, really, really waited for a special day to come? When I was little, it was Christmas. I always waited for Christmas. I remember right after Thanksgiving was over, my mom and my aunt, they would gather all the kids. The dads would disappear somewhere. I'm not quite sure where they ended up going. Uh, But we as children, we would get together and we would cut pieces of construction paper into these little slips. And then we would make them into little circles and we would make a chain of construction paper. Am I the only one who ever did this? Okay, you understand? And, you know, they would do the math. Somebody got a calculator out. How many days until Christmas from this particular Thanksgiving? And then we would hang them in our bedrooms, and you would just clip off a piece of paper each day until there was no chain left, and next morning would be Christmas. And eagerly anticipating, I know, isn't that cute? Eagerly waiting for that day to come. I remember when I was about to get married, and I even see now a lot of Young people that are getting married or whatever, they have these apps and their countdown days. I remember the Bellellas were insane with the countdown days until we get married. My wife and I were married for over two years, and I can't even count that high. Uh, 700 and something days uh, counting down until the day that we would get married. And so there are these days that are out there that you're eagerly anticipating. You know that it's up there in the future, and you're just waiting for the day to actually happen. And today, we're going to see that there was a day like that in history. Now, if you would go back in your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, we have to finish up the last kind of account that occurred in that chapter before moving into our, our main passage for today, which is chapter 21. And in, the, in our last study of Matthew, two weeks ago, what we saw was that James and John and their mother, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and their mother, that they had approached Jesus and asked Jesus for a favor. Hey, could you do something for us? And Jesus is like, well, what is it you want me to do for you? And again, James's mother was like, well, nothing significant. Just make my kids number one and two in the kingdom. Let them be, you know, on your left hand and on your right hand. And as we considered that, we asked ourselves this question, well, why? Why do you want to be on my left hand? Why do you want to be on my right hand? What what are you actually looking for? What are you longing for by being placed in those two uh, positions, high positions? And of course we know, based on what we continue to look at, is because they wanted to have a place of authority. They wanted to be rulers, and they wanted to be treated like rulers. And so Now, you might say, James and John, you dogs, I can't believe you would act that way. But the reality is every one of the disciples was thinking the same thing. And they went on to tell us that they were mad at James and John and their mom because they beat them to the punch. And they asked Jesus first. And they would have liked to have asked the question. They just had a little more couth, perhaps. And so they held back before asking, but they were angry. And that presented Jesus with an opportunity to address this. Remember, Jesus is going to be off the scene. In just less than a month, he's going to be off the scene. And it's going to be up to these disciples, if you will, to run the church. Now, of course, we know that it's the Holy Spirit. But humanly speaking, it would be up to these disciples to run the church. And so Jesus essentially has to say, look, guys, you're totally misunderstanding what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said to them, whoever, this is in Matthew 20, verse 26, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we know, we've looked at the context, 
Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. I don't know about you, and I'm sure, though, with the Lord, and I'm sure with you as well, that if that was ahead of you, it would be a very sober walk to Jerusalem. These things would be on your mind. And I'm sure Jesus doesn't feel like dealing with a bunch of guys that want to be number one in the kingdom. And yet, in mercy and in kindness, Jesus deals with them, and he says, guys, you don't understand what it means to be a leader. This is what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God. Not the conversation he was hoping to have, and I'm sure it, it perhaps left a little bad taste in his mouth. But fortunately, chapter 20 closes out with a very sweet encounter that immediately follows that. And if Jesus did have a bad taste in his mouth, it washes it away. Starting in verse 29, it says, Now as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. Now, as it says in the beginning there, this passage is taking place as they went out of Jer Jericho, or they're on their way to Jericho there. It talks about Jericho is located about 50, 15, I should say, miles northeast of Jerusalem. So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem on maybe a 70 or 80 mile walk uh, from the Galilee region, depending on where he was in the Galilee. And they are now pretty much on the final leg of the trip. One of the last big cities that they're going to hit is Jericho. So they're about 15 miles away from that. And we're getting closer and closer. If you were to skim ahead or if you read ahead here, we're getting very, very close to the Passover week or the Passion Week that you sometimes hear it referred to, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And so we're moving toward that. This will be the last event, really, which occurs before that. And he encounters, as it says, two men as he is leaving the city. Now Jericho was believed to have a bush in that day that had medicinal purposes that could heal a person's eye uh, injury. So if a person was blind and you got almost like an aloe plant or something and you kind of broke it and you took that little ointment and put it on your eyes, it was believed that that ointment could heal a person of their blindness. I don't know if it actually could or not, uh, but nonetheless people believed it. And so a lot of people, blind people, would flock to Jericho hoping that they would be healed. And as we know, historically, in this example, many of the people that did come there were not healed. And so they instead had to turn to a life, really, of begging. And so here are these two guys there, and there's an unusually high number of blind men and women in that population that are looking for healing. Here are the two guys that are also looking for it. Now, as was typical with the Lord, when he would kind of come on the scene, crowds would begin to form around him. Word would begin to filter. And so a crowd began to form around the Lord as he made his way through the city onto Jerusalem. Matthew tells us specifically that it was a great crowd that formed around the Lord. The word that is used there uh, is a word which could mean a throng of people. So it's not just that it's a lot of people. But it's a lot of people that are pressing in. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of commotion. The picture you should have in your mind is one of chaos. Chaos is taking place in Jerusalem as people realize that Jesus is passing through the particular city. And amidst all of that commotion are these two blind men. 
Now, obviously, being blind men, they couldn't see what was happening, but no doubt they could hear what is happening. No, they, more than likely, they were probably getting bumped and pushed and shoved a little bit more so than normal as the crowd is sort of following the Lord. And as time would go on, one of them, it doesn't say, but we can assume that this is what happens, one of them begins to reach out to someone and say, hey, hey, what's going on? Why all the noise? Why all the commotion? And finally, one of them hears this blind man asking that, and they say, well, Jesus is here. The rabbi from Galilee is here. And in their mind, they're likely thinking something like this, Jesus is here? See, they had, we know they heard about Jesus. We know they knew who Jesus was based on their response, which we'll look at in a moment here. And so now they find out that he's actually here. You see, Jesus was 80 miles away. He could have been 800 miles away. I'm not getting up there to Galilee, but he's here. And all of a sudden, hope floods into their hearts because they believe if he is here, then I can be healed. And so they begin to cry out for him. It's interesting, the word that is used there in verse 30 where it says, they cried out, Lord have mercy on us. It's a word which means that they were yelling. It's a term that is used oftentimes to describe a woman in labor. Now I had a wife who gave birth three times. And she was sweet. You hear a lot about women being like crazy or something when they're giving birth. Not my wife. She was sweet because she's a godly woman. And she was very nice. She was also heavily medicated, uh, <laughs> which may have had something to do it. But the word is used to describe a woman not heavily medicated yelling out from the pain of giving birth. These guys are screaming at the top of their lungs for Jesus. They don't know exactly where he is, but based on the crowd and the noise and the commotion, he's out there somewhere, and they're screaming, hoping he will hear, and he will answer their plea. Notice what they're crying out in verse 30. They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now let's look at that. Lord, notice it's with a capital L. It's a term which was reserved for a person with supreme authority. So if somebody were to call you or you were to call somebody Lord using the capital L and, and meaning to do that with the capital L, it was a clear statement on your part to the magnitude of the person it was being used of. You were making a clear statement. People that use this term were acknowledging the greatness of the person that they were using it of. And it's, so it's interesting that this word is used 667 times in the New Testament of Jesus. There was a clear consensus of the masses in the first century of the greatness of Jesus. And the people, just as these two blind men knew, that Jesus was more than a nice teacher from the Galilee region. They acknowledged him to be Lord, with a capital L. Now, in addition to that, notice they also call him the Son of David. And we've looked at the term previously. This term, the Son of David, unequivocally meant, everyone knew it in that day, what it meant, that this, it was a term that was associated with the Messiah and with the, the long-awaited Christ that would be sent to save God's people from their sins. So these guys are calling him Lord, and they're calling him the Son of David. This is not just a polite greeting to a dignitary that is coming into town. What these two men are doing is ascribing to Jesus the title of the Messiah, and they're calling him the one with supreme authority. And they're doing so in a voice of a woman in the final stages of labor. They're yelling at the top of their lungs. Now, it's interesting to see the response of the crowd. If you look in verse 31, it says, The crowd 
rebuked them, telling them to be silent. I can imagine people like, would you stop yelling? You need to be quiet. You're a distraction. You're making a scene, things like that. But I love these guys. They ignore the rebuke of the crowd, and it says they cry out all the more. They said, no, no, you be quiet. No one's telling me to be quiet. I'm going to tell them. Look, Jesus doesn't come around these parts every day. This is my one chance. I love the confidence and the hope that they have in Jesus being able to heal them. I think if we were as desperate for Jesus to heal us, he would heal every area of our lives as well. If we were as desperate as these guys are, if it was according to his will. So they say, no, you be quiet. I'm going to do what I need to do. They needed a touch from the Lord, and they weren't going to let anyone stop them from getting that touch. I think a lot of people in our day know that they need a touch from the Lord, but sadly do allow others to keep them from pursuing that touch. Because perhaps as they're being drawn to the Lord, they're being told by the crowds that religion is a crutch that only the weak need. They're being rebuked for the passion that is in their heart for the things of God. Maybe they're hearing things like, well, God doesn't want to hear from you. He's got far more important people and things to deal with. Maybe they're being told, you know what, you're too much of a sinner and you were too far, far gone and God would never forgive you. And sadly, too many people, I think, in our day and throughout the millennia have allowed the rebuke of the crowd to dissuade them from pursuing the healing touch of Jesus. But these guys are desperate. And no amount of rebuke is going to keep them from petitioning the Lord for his mercy. You see that word used there in verse 31. And so continuing in 32, it says, Now stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. And so despite the attempts of the crowds to dissuade these guys, they continue to cry out to the Lord for mercy, and he shows them mercy. Notice, I think what's significant also, is despite the throngs of people, Jesus takes notice of them. You see how significant that is? Despite the throngs of people, Jesus takes notice of them. If you ever thought that you were too insignificant for Jesus to take notice of, or that your prayer was too insignificant for Jesus to hear, then this account should be an encouragement to you that he sees you and he hears you. Despite the fact that there's a huge throng of people that are pressing in on Christ and demanding of Christ, Jesus notices these two men. And despite the fact that Jesus is about to go to a cross and to suffer, and likely has other things on his heart and on his mind, he nevertheless stops and shows mercy to these two men. Despite the fact that everyone else has concluded that these two men are not worth Jesus' time and effort, Jesus thinks they are worth his time and his effort. And so he stops. Oh, wow, all right. And he calls them, and he says to them, what do you want me to do? Now, I find this interesting. Jesus knows what they need, and he knows what they want, even before they have to say what they want. But he asks them nonetheless, what is it? that you guys need. And there's no reason for him to do so, being who he is, and he knows how they want him to show mercy to them. It's not give them five bucks, it's heal them. But he asks them nonetheless, and I think that causes us, okay, well, why does he do that? Why does he bother to ask him what they want if he already knows what it is they want and what it is they need? And I think the answer is something that can speak to us as well, is because in asking, 
they would need to express their, uh, their trust and their reliance on him. He knows exactly what they need, and he knows exactly what we need in our lives as well. But nonetheless, he asks us to come and to ask. And he wants us to come and make our requests known to him. And these guys do that. Now, these guys answer with specifics. They, they don't say, Lord, just bless us. Just bless us, Lord. And oftentimes we pray that, don't we? We just say, Lord, just bless me. Bless Sally. Poor Sally. She could really use a blessing today. And I think the Lord can figure out what you mean. But may I encourage you, please, be specific with what it is you're asking the Lord to do. Articulate it to the Lord. These guys, they are specific. They say, Lord, we want to see. Open our eyes. I don't know if I read it to you, but I will. Verse 32, stopping, Jesus said, what do you want me to do? They said, Lord, let our eyes be open. Pray specifically to the Lord, asking according to his will that he may hear your request. Well, their request touches a nerve, and the Lord hears, and he shows pity, as it says there. It's a word which means compassion. He shows compassion. May I encourage you, make your request known. Perhaps the Lord will hear your prayer. He certainly will hear it. Perhaps he'll answer showing compassion. You never know unless you ask, and Jesus encourages us to ask. And so these men are healed. What a wonderful testimony of Jesus' kindness and his mercy, isn't it? Now, as we go into chapter 21, we move now just outside of the city of Jerusalem. This is the whole reason why he left the Galilee region about three weeks or so earlier. And so let me read the opening verses of the chapter, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, to the, mountain, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, as I was looking at that passage, I found it hard to believe that we've come this far in the book of Matthew, that we are in sort of the last events of Jesus' life. We've been studying Matthew now for about 15 months, and honestly, for me, it feels like we've been studying it for three or four weeks. I've, I've been enjoying it. I hope you have been as well. And as we've been looking at this, we've been moving toward Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem over this next week is the whole reason why Jesus came here to the earth. And today we look at the beginning, if you will, of the events in Jerusalem. Today we look at what is commonly called the triumphal entry into the city. Now, if you're not familiar with this passage, perhaps you're familiar with this term. This is what some Christians would refer to as Palm Sunday. And so here it is, it's Palm Sunday, it's about a week, or it is a week before the resurrection of Christ, four or five days before the crucifixion 
of Christ. And the reason it's commonly referred to as Palm Sunday is as we saw in this particular passage, because when Jesus was making his way into the town, the people began to lay their coats on the ground. They began to lay palm branches on the ground. They were, if you will, laying out the red carpet for Jesus to enter in on. And they were showing respect to this king. They were doing some, or this man, they were doing some other things as well, which we'll look at. Now the chapter begins by mentioning the town of Bethpage. Bethpage is located about four miles outside of Jerusalem. It's the last village, if you will. Jer- Jericho is more like a city. This is the last village, if you will, before Jerusalem. If you look down in verse 17, just scan down there for a, me- a moment, you'll notice there it mentions the city of Bethany. Bethany was located about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And there was basically one road that ran through both of those little villages, first hitting Bethany and then making your way to Bethphage. Some of, your, uh, some of the passages that talk about this speak of the area of Bethpage and Bethany. That's probably the area right between those two places, sort of the outskirts of the villages. And so we're in that particular area. I think we have, there you go, look at that. We have a little picture up here. You can see how close Jerusalem, this would represent the walls of the city of Jerusalem. You see the temple forms, sort of the eastern border of the city there. You can see the Garden of uh, Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, how close we are. And obviously you can get a picture of where Bethpage and Bethany are located. All of those places that are on that map there, that schematic, we're going to be looking at over this next set of weeks as we study these next few chapters. And so coming near now to the city of Jerusalem, the Bible says drawing near to it, Jesus stops and he instructs two of his disciples to go into Bethpage. Notice he says where they will immediately find a donkey with its colt, which they are to untie and bring back to Jesus. Now, if I wasn't familiar with this, this would sound somewhere like a mix between grand larceny and a college fraternity prank. You know, here's what I wanted to go in and steal the, the other people's goat or whatever it may be. And I imagine there's a bit of a look on the face of the disciples like, you want me to go where and steal what for you? Like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. And I, I think Jesus may have seen that on their face because he very quickly adds, look, if anyone says anything to you, you just tell them the Lord needs them. And the guy will be like, oh, okay, cool. And so it seems as if perhaps Jesus has already set up this transaction. Maybe the last time he was there, and Jesus would go to Jerusalem at least once a year. And oftentimes when he would go, he would stay around Bethany, which was seven miles out, and he would make his way through Bethpage and so on. So it seems that Jesus may or maybe already made an agreement with this guy, where the guy said, hey, Next time you're in town, if you need anything, you look me up. And just said, next time I'm town, I'm going to look you up or something. And they had it all worked out or whatever. It could certainly also be a situation where Jesus is just all-knowing. And we know the Bible talks about his omniscience and, and he knows all. And that he knew, look, all you got to do is tell the guy the Lord needs it and the guy will be good with it. So it could be something like that as well. We don't know exactly. But Jesus tells these guys, just tell him the master needs them and he'll be okay with it. And so that's what they're going to do. Now, Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem riding in on this colt. And this is a very unusual move for Jesus. If you've been with us as we've been studying through the book of Matthew, one of the things that you know is that Jesus' typical MO, his modus operandi, his typical way of acting was to deflect the attention. Now, the attention came to him. People were drawn to him. The crowds would form around him. But every time that the crowds would come to him, 
As soon as they would say something like, let's make this guy king, Jesus would dismiss himself from the crowds, or he would dismiss the crowds themselves. And yet here, Jesus is doing something which is going to draw a crowd. It's completely out of character from the, for the Lord, I should say. Notice in verse 4, Matthew realizes that it's out of character for the Lord. Matthew says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to your daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, Matthew is referencing the prophecy which is found in the book of Zechariah. Let me show you the prophecy in Zechariah. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in that day, this prophecy was universally understood. So all Jews understood what this prophecy was about. It was a prophecy of God's Messiah. And so by riding into Jerusalem in this way, Jesus was making it unequivocally clear that he was God's anointed one sent from heaven. That's what Messiah means. God's anointed one sent from heaven to deal with man's sin. So you need to understand this because we're all familiar with Palm Sunday and we probably went to church when we were little and got the palms or whatever and they were blessed by so-and-so and so you can't throw them away so they're lying around your house or your parents' house or something like that and we're so familiar with it. Please understand this. Unless it was Jesus' intention to publicly declare that he was the Messiah, he would have never entered the city in this way. Okay? Unless it was his intention to publicly declare, I am the Messiah and I am fulfilling the prophecy which everybody understands to be about the Messiah, then Jesus would have never entered into the city in this way. Because no longer could any Jew that was in the area there of observing what Jesus was doing, no longer could any of them possibly say, well, we didn't know who you were. If you would have just told us who you are, I'm telling you now. I'm riding into the city in this particular way. One commentator said, this is an acted out parable. It's where Jesus is removing the veil of secrecy as to who he is. Now the disciples who are told to go get these colts, they do that. I find that awesome. The two disciples go, they steal a couple, I'm just kidding. They go, they do what Jesus instructed them to do. Verse 6 tells us that. And in verse 7, they bring it back to the Lord. And with their jackets and so on, they make a saddle on this particular uh, colt, which had never been ridden on before. And the other people in the community, verse 8 tells us, they begin to lay their cloaks on the ground. They begin to lay out the red carpet with the palm branches and so on. I found it interesting in studying this. In the Roman society of that day that Jesus was living in, that first century Roman society, they were Jews, but they were under the control of the Romans. In that society, a battle would typically take place out of the village, out of the city. It would take place out in the open fields. And the custom was then for the conquering general, if he had conquered the people of that village, the conquering general to come back now into the village, so the battle takes place out in the fields, to come back now into the village riding in on a majestic horse. And they would come in, and the symbolism of him coming in on that horse would be, we won, we defeated your army people, and it would be wise for you to lay down your arms as well and to submit to our leadership. Now, if 
that same general or king who had just conquered this little village and their army best or whatever it may be, if they were to go away and now we're in control of that village, but he's away somewhere far away, and let's say two, three years later, he comes back to visit this village, which over those years have been submissive to his leadership or the leadership of the Roman people, whatever it may be, he would come riding into the city not on a majestic horse, but he would come riding into the city on a donkey. And that was also supposed to communicate something. So the horse communicated, if we need to fight, I'll fight you, and I'll win, because I just defeated your best. What the donkey, and riding in on the donkey communicates is, I'm coming in peace. You don't have to be afraid of me. Everything is well. And so Jesus now comes riding into this city of Jerusalem, symbolically here on a donkey, communicating that he was coming in peace. Jesus is referred to in the scripture as the prince of peace. And Jesus enters into this city coming to bring peace, that the people need not worry, so to speak. Now, it's not written for us in Matthew, but this account of the triumphal entry is found in all four Gospels. Very few accounts of events are found in all four Gospels. This one is. And in the Luke passage, it tells us that just before actually entering into the city of Jerusalem, as he's riding on the goat covered, or, um, the coat covered donkey, the little saddle they made, as he's riding in, that Jesus stops, probably at a vantage point, and he begins to look over the city of Jerusalem. And it tells us there in Luke, we don't have it up on the screen, but it tells us in Luke that Jesus begins to weep over the city. And he weeps over the city because he knows that in just about five days, they're going to reject their Messiah. They're going to reject him. And Jesus, as their Messiah had come, to the city to bring peace and they had rejected that peace and he knows in just about 30 years destruction is going to come from the hands of the romans of the city of jerusalem and jesus weeps over the city this is what he said in luke 19 now it's not on the screen so you got to pay attention to me it says this would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes the scripture is clear all of humanity is separated from God by sin. You read through its pages. You can find specific verses that we could quote uh, and so on. But if you read through its pages, you quickly discover that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that sin separates a person from God. Now, the Bible refers to a person that is separated from God by their sin as an enemy of God. It says that we have enmity with God. That's what that term means. And the scripture says this, that Jesus in his first coming came not to bring war. That's why he didn't come in on a horse. But he came to bring peace. That's the significance of the fact that he came in on a lowly donkey. He came bringing peace for all of those who would receive him as king. Despite the fact that they were enemies of God because of their sin, he came to bring peace. The apostle Paul would say this, that God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, even some versions say, that Christ died for us. Though he is our king, in his first coming, he came not to conquer, but to be conquered himself. And by that, what I mean is to give his life, that through faith in him, we might have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he came, riding in lowly on a donkey. Now, the scripture makes this also clear. 
But there will come a day when Jesus will, come, will go forth to conquer, where he will triumphantly enter into Jerusalem again, not on a lowly donkey, though, but rather on a majestic steed, where he will not come to a people that have willingly submitted themselves to his reign, but rather to a rebellious people that will need to be subdued. And we read about it in the book of Revelation. It says this in Revelation chapter 19. It says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Jesus will enter into that city on a majestic horse. The scripture says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It says it in the New Testament and it says it in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 45 says, By myself, the Lord speaking, I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. There is no doubt about it. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Now the hope is, Jesus' goal is, that every knee would bow as he enters in, so to speak, lowly and humble, offering himself a sacrifice on our behalf. But the reality is this, not everyone's going to receive that. But every knee will bow. And if it needs to be forced to bow, or it voluntarily bows, every knee will acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. And may I exhort you, if you're here and you've never submitted your life to the Lordship of Christ, may I say choose wisely in what state you bow your knee. It is so much better to humbly bow on your own than to be forced to bow. Now back in Matthew, here's the scene we have. We have a four-mile parade that has developed. It's lining the streets from Bethpage to Jerusalem. The crowd has lined the roads with coats and their palm branches. They formed, as I said, a red carpet, so to speak, uh, for the city. And Jesus now has placed the top of this donkey. Everyone there knows exactly what is being communicated by this action. And Matthew drives it home for us by telling us what the crowds begin to do. Look at verse 9. It says, Now the crowds that went before him and that followed him, they encircle him, so to speak, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna in our day has come to be associated with worship. We sing songs about Hosanna and so on. Would you like me to No, you don't want me to sing. But in, in the Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, the term Hosanna was a term that was used or directed toward kings. So if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 2 Kings chapter 6, the people called out to their kings and used the phrase Hosanna. So it's a term which means, just literally it means save now. And so they would yell it to their king, save us, save us, or lead us, or direct us, or take us in a particular direction. And again, as I said, in time it came to be associated with God's Messiah. But here they are calling to Jesus and saying, Hosanna, as he sits on this horse, which they know is a fulfillment of, or at least goes back to, the Zechariah prophecy, and they're calling him king. They're saying to him, save us now. What do they want to be saved from? They want to be saved from the Roman oppression. Save us, save us, save us. Now, I suspect if Jesus came in on a horse, that the Roman soldiers or whatever would have been concerned. 
Because here's a guy coming in on a horse and there's crowds forming that are saying, you know, let's take him on, let's fight him. But seeing Jesus come in on a donkey, they're like, eh, he's just a guy from up north. We don't have to worry about him. But the people know what they're saying. And they're saying, save us now, save us now. It's clear. They cry out, Hosanna. And they also notice in verse 9, refer to him as the son of David and also say, he who comes in the name of the Lord. I've already talked about the son of David, which was a reference to Messiah that they all knew. Also, that phrase, he who comes in the name of the Lord, was a reference to the Messiah. So they're saying here, they're using Old Testament terms that are designed to refer to a king, and they're using terms which refer to the Messiah. Again, there's no doubt as to what these people think is going on here. And again, Jesus would have never allowed this to happen if this is not what he wanted people to think. I referenced earlier in the Luke passage, I referenced earlier the Luke passage, there's some things we can learn in that passage that aren't found here in Matthew. And there in that passage, we learn that the religious leaders, Luke 19.39, it says that the Pharisees began to call out to Jesus. They weaseled their way there uh, to Jesus, and they said, Teacher, make your disciples stop. You see, they have already determined Jesus is not the Messiah. And yet that's what everybody seems to be thinking. And so they say, Rabbi, make them stop. They can't say this. They command Jesus. Now Jesus will not make them stop. And he lets it go on. Continuing in verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now we are now about four days before the Passover of the Jews. And the Passover is something that has been happening all the way back to the days of Moses. And the people would gather in Jerusalem. We are the Sunday before that Passover. Now, it was required of Jewish males, oftentimes the whole families would go, that they had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And it's estimated that the population of Jerusalem in the first century was somewhere between twenty and 30,000 people that lived inside the walls and on the outskirts there of, in the fields of Jerusalem, Twenty to 30,000 people. It's estimated that during the feast, those numbers would climb as many as six times the amount of people. And so a city which was normally 20,000, 30,000 people could swell all the way up to 150 or 160,000 people. So this place is crazy. Imagine what would happen in your little town that you live in if it grew six times over a particular weekend. It would be a zoo, and there'd be traffic everywhere, and the sales, and the people trying to buy food, and hotels, and places to stay, and nowhere to really go to work or whatever, and so just sort of hanging around, it would be craziness. And so the city there in Jerusalem is six times its typical size. Now add to that, it's just not a peaceful day, it says that the entire city, the whole city, was stirred by Jesus' arrival, and so you can imagine you have quite a scene here. And if Jesus' intention was to reveal himself to the largest segment of the Jewish population, this was the time and the place to do so. And it's exactly what he did. Jesus wants them to know. It's striking to consider again how out of character this is for the Lord to do this. And yet he does it anyway. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus would say, my time has not yet come. My time is not, Lord, are you now going to, my time has not yet come. You would hear again and again and again. And Jesus, by his actions and his words, makes it clear that his time has come. 
And so he's entering in triumphantly into the city. There's a prophecy in the book of Daniel. Let me read it to you. It's from chapter 9, verse 25. It says, Now know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall. Now we know historically when that command, as it says there in 925, Daniel 925, we know historically when that was given. Let me backtrack a little. When the Babylonians came in and captured the southern tribes of Israel, the nation of Judah, which included the city of Jerusalem, they came in, they conquered the city of Jerusalem, and they destroyed both the city walls and the temple at that time, and then they led the people away into captivity. We read a book like Daniel, for instance, which talks about the Babylonian captivity. And we studied not too long ago in Second Chronicles that they brought, it says that clearly, they brought these folks right at the end of the book into captivity there in Babylon. Now, 70 years went on, and the Babylonians themselves were defeated. So they were the world-ruling empire, and they themselves were defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And though the Jews were still captives, they were granted permission to go back to their homeland, to go back to Jerusalem. We studied that when we were looking at the book of Ezra. And when we studied the book of Ezra, and that's why we study all these things, friend, you know, because it all pieces together. And so when we studied the book of Ezra, what we saw is that there was a small remnant of the Jews, maybe about 50,000 of perhaps as many as 4 million or so, about 50,000 said, I'm going back. That was around 539 B.C. And that was the first wave of returning Jews to Jerusalem. There would be three waves of people that would go back to Jerusalem. That was the first wave. And so the captivity, as you deal with all three of those waves, am I being clear, I hope? The captivity lasted really about 100 years for each of these waves to return. And finally, the last of those waves of returning Jews came during what we have recorded for us, the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king of the Persians. Remember, the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Nehemiah was the cupbearer. Now, that sounds like he was the butler, but really he was sort of like the prime minister uh, or a member of the cabinet of the king of Persia. And so we read about that. We studied it when we were looking at the book of Nehemiah. And it's there in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah comes to the king He had just heard news that Jerusalem still lay in ruins, that the temple was up and going, but the walls, the people were insecure, and all that kind of stuff. And Nehemiah chapter 1 tells us he begins to weep and to mourn over that news. We know, obviously, it disfigures his face. You know how you look when you cry, your eyes are all puffy or whatever it may be, mascara and all that kind of stuff. I don't think he had that on, but nonetheless, you get the idea. And it was pretty clear that he was upset about something. So he goes in before the king to do his job, and the king says to him, what's the matter? Why are you sad? And Nehemiah 2 says, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? He says, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, it it was not customary for the king to see anybody sad. It was a great privilege for you to go into the presence of the king. Interesting, it was illegal there in that Persian society to enter in with a sad face before the king. Wouldn't that be great if you could make laws that people couldn't come in front of you sad or angry or frustrated or anything like that? Well, this king had that 
authority, if you will. And so Nehemiah 2 says, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? Nothing but sadness of heart. Notice it says there, Then I was very much afraid. He was very much afraid because the penalty for going in before the king and distracting him to stop thinking about anything but himself was death. And so by entering in the way that he did and drawing attention to himself, he was now facing a death penalty. Now, fortunately, Nehemiah had built such a relationship with the king of Persia, a guy by the name of Xerxes. He had built such a relationship with him that Xerxes, instead of killing him, says, well, what, is, what can I do to help? How may I help you? And I love this. Nehemiah, it says, I said a quick prayer. I said, oh, boy, help me, Lord. And I told him what I needed. I love that, praying on the run like that. And so just communicating, Nehemiah says, I'd like to go back to Jerusalem and oversee the rebuilding of the walls so that my people would be safe and the city that I love would be safe. And the king says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, or it says, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8 should be circled. Because it is a very, you don't have to do it now, Arlene. She's going there to do it, you know, like, he said to circle it, you know, or whatever. It's a significant verse because that's the verse which fulfills Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And again, Daniel chapter 9 said, From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah will be, Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, you need to understand that a week is like the way we use the word decade. It's a term which meant a seven-year period of time. So seven plus 62 is 69. 69 times seven is 483 years. So from that decree, you could set a clock and count up 483 years and 483 years from that decree will be the day that the Messiah appears on the scene to the Jewish people. And so, there's a book at our resource table here uh, that is, the, it's called The Coming Prince. Do we have any more of those, Jim? There may be a book at the book table there that is called The Coming Prince. It's written by a guy named Sir Robert Anderson. He was knighted uh, for his, what he did. Uh, in England there, and he's written this book, The Coming Prince, and it, he did the math, and he, he worked it all out, and remember, there's changes of calendars, so there was a Jewish calendar, then there was a Julian calendar, then there was a Gregorian calendar, and in the 1850s or so, Sir Robert Anderson did all of the math, and he figured out, and it brings us right into the time of the first century when Christ work, walked the earth. Now, earlier, I quoted the Luke passage, and I mentioned there, just prior to going into Jerusalem, that Jesus wept over the city, that's Luke chapter 19, 42. Again, this is what he said. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The way that's worded in the Greek language, it, sh it can be worded this way. Would that you, even you, had known on this day, even this day, the things that make for peace. That's how it could be worded there. Because again, it's as if a giant stopwatch had started, which would culminate in this day that Messiah would be presented to Israel. Now, the decree was given, we know historically, the one from Nehemiah chapter 2, 1, was given in the year 444 B.C. And so if you add 483 years to that date, 
And as I said, you factor in the differences because some of the calendars have a 365-day calendar, some have a 360-day calendar. So you do the math, you factor it in, you take away leap years and all of that sort of stuff. It brings you right to the spring of A.D. 32. And it brings you right in what would be for us right around the month of April. It's the month of Nisan, 32 A.D. And it brings you in four days before the Passover of that year. And what happened four days before the Passover of A.D. 33? We'll count back Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, Sunday. Four days before the Passover, Jesus triumphantly enters into the city of Jerusalem in what we have referred to, what we refer to as Palm Sunday. Just as Daniel said, the Messiah, the Prince, had come. And sadly, the people, primarily the religious leaders, miss that their long-awaited Messiah had come. You know, every time a, a Jewish boy was born, the people would rejoice over that fact because this could be the Messiah. It sounds terrible to say, but when a little girl was born, so they're waiting there, oh, it's going to be great, she's going to have a baby. And a little girl was born, people would be like, oh, man. And they would slump away, not because they didn't like girls or whatever, but because she was not going to be the Messiah. Their hopes were built for the Messiah. They were waiting on, they were expecting the Messiah would come. And now he has come, and the religious leaders have missed it. He had come on the day that was appointed. The scripture says Jesus is going to come on another day that is also appointed. It's right around the same time as these events that are occurring that Jesus would address his disciples, and he would say this to them. He would say, let not your hearts be troubled. This is at the Last Supper. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus said, I will come again, and I'll take you to myself that where you may be also. Just about a month after the events that we're reading about today, when Jesus would be taken up into heaven. So he'd be crucified, he would rise again, he would appear sporadically over a period of about a month or so, and then he, in Acts chapter 1, we read that he would ascend into heaven. And as he ascended up into heaven, the disciples are sitting there. They were just talking to him. Now they're looking up at him. And alongside of them appears two men, it says. Two angels appear alongside. And they say this, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There was a day appointed for Jesus' first coming. Even so, there was a day, there will be a day appointed for his second coming. And I ask you simply this, are you ready for his second coming? You need to be. Revelation chapter 19. Let me close by reading this, because this is what it's going to be like. And we do this in Israel when we're there. We go to uh, Armageddon, and we overlook the fields of Armageddon. We go to Megiddo, and we overlook the fields where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And it says he's going to appear, I think it says, I don't remember right now, but he's going to appear in the east sky. And we figure out where the east sky is, and we turn and we look at it, and then we read this passage, because this is what's going to happen on the earth. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Remember the horse? The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called 
is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, which says, King of King, kings and Lord of Lords. Continuing, he says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That day is coming, and there is a day appointed. And I believe it's coming quickly. It's much better to be right with the Lord before that day, when he has come in peace. If you have not yet gotten right with Jesus, you need to do so today. Before you leave, come talk to me, and we'll make sure you're right with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, these words, I imagine, could cause fear for some. Or, Lord, they could uh, enlarge our hearts where we long for the day of your coming return. Lord, where all sin and all wickedness will be put aside and righteousness will reign upon the earth. Lord, we long for that day. Our hearts long for that day. Father, as I even think back to earlier in our study today, when we considered these two blind men, Lord, you were so kind and so good and so gracious as you took notice of them. You went over and you showed mercy to each of them. Lord, you healed them. Lord, even as others were trying to keep them from coming to you. And Lord, as you enter into the city, Lord, for the next 2,000 years, that's what you've been trying to do. You've been extending the olive branch so that the end between God and man could be dealt with and that people could be made right with the Lord. And Father, for many of us in this room, we've done that and we rejoice in our salvation. We, we rejoice in the fact that our sin and the stain of our sin has been put aside and we can just enter into your presence, as it says in Hebrews, Lord, that we can come in there boldly because the righteousness of Christ has become our own righteousness. We've been washed from our sin and when you look on us, you see the righteousness of Jesus. And we love that, Lord. Father, we pray for our friends and our family members. We pray for people we work with. Lord, we pray for people scattered throughout this world that have yet to discover the mercy of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up their hearts to believe. Lord, if you would have us go and be the ones to speak those words of truth, then we pray, Lord, that we would respond in obedience to that call. But Lord, we ask that your kingdom would advance here on the earth in the hearts of people as we wait expectantly for your kingdom to come here to the earth to reign over it. Lord, you've been kind to us and good to us, and we love you so. And we pray our prayer in your son's name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.